Amen. You may be seated. Our Old Testament reading and text for this morning's sermon is Psalm 24. And then if you would turn in your Bibles as well to Ephesians chapter 4 for our New Testament reading. So Psalm 24 and then Ephesians chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord, and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And Then now to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be looking at the first ten verses. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, What does it mean but that he also had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless to our hearts, to our minds, the reading and the hearing of your word. We thank you for this precious means of grace, that just the reading and the hearing of your word blesses our hearts because it is your truth. It comes from your mouth. You are a God of truth. But now, Lord, we come to the proclamation of your word, which you have ordained in your worship. 
You call men. You gift them for gospel ministry. You set them apart by the laying on of hands of the presbytery to the high calling of the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But all of these men are but jars of clay. All of these men have feet of clay. But you delight to put treasure in earthen vessels that your name would be glorified in the preaching of your gospel. And Father, your servant here called to this task is very aware that he is incapable of doing this apart from your strength and the unction of your Holy Spirit looks to you to supply it that your people may be edified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you know, in these Sundays that are getting every time fewer and fewer that I have left with you, um, believing that God is calling Matthew here, there are still steps to be made, we know, before he arrives, but we trust that he'll be coming sometime in the fall. Uh, I decided instead of beginning a series in a book to look at different ones of the Psalms, uh, returning to the Psalms, because I've done this before uh, with this congregation. And of course, the first two, I had already preached them here. It had been three years. That was probably long enough. But I still decided to go forward with that after Psalm 1 with Psalm 2 because you have the, the, the twin pillars, the introduction to the whole of the Psalter in Psalms 1 and 2. Um, and then last time when I was here, we looked at Psalm 8. And one of the things I'm trying to do as we come to these is just to give you a taste of situating the Psalm we're looking at with where it is in the Psalter. This Thursday, my class begins on the floor of the Psalter. We will not be live streaming it, but we are going to be recording it, and hopefully we can make those recordings available um, uh, for use in churches or individuals. Uh, We'll see how that works its way out. But we're going to be looking in that course on the entirety of the Psalter uh, and its arrangement. And when we came to Psalm 8 last time, the one thing I noted was an observation that Dr. Robertson made that before the acrostic psalms in book one, and there are a number of acrostic psalms in book one, and remember acrostic psalm is one that each successive verse is the next begins with the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet. I wish that we had a scholar uh, who was gifted in Hebrew and also in English to translate the acrostic psalms using the English alphabet so we would get the sense of this artistic form that you find in poetic form that you find in Hebrew poetry. Because you read your your English Bibles, you're reading through the Psalter, you don't know it's an acrostic psalm. You read a note. But the observation he made in book 1, Psalms 1 to 41, is when you have an acrostic psalm like Psalm 9 and Psalm 10, those are acrostic psalms, the psalm that precedes it is a creation hymn. And he doesn't know why. I don't know why. It's just an observation. And that's the case. Psalm 8 is a creation hymn. 
Well, likewise, when we come to Psalm 24, this is what turned my attention to this particular psalm. And Psalm 24 is what? It's a creation hymn. Just like we saw with 8 and 9, we see the same thing with Psalm 24 and Psalm 25. But there's something else that I want to show you here with Psalm 24. This is probably something you've never heard before unless you've read Dr. Robertson's book. But I think it's crucial to begin to see these things, to see how the arrangement of the Psalms helps us in understanding particular Psalms. Psalm 25 being an acrostic Psalm means take a look and see what precedes it and the Psalms that come before it and see if there's a connection between those Psalms. And indeed there is. Beginning with Psalm 20 and ending with Psalm 24, all of these Psalms are kingship Psalms. They're kingship Psalms, 20 and 21, 22, 23, and 24. You might say, well, I know Psalm 23. It's not a kingship Psalm. It's a shepherd Psalm, and it is a shepherd Psalm. But even there are pointers in the Greek itself, but beyond that, scholars have recognized, and especially seeing it in this connection with these other Psalms around it, that the shepherd, the Lord who is our shepherd, is the king. And we have a, a paraphrase hymn that's based upon Psalm 23 that we sometimes sing. It's the king of love my shepherd is. You know that hymn? Because the psalm writer recognized that connection. And because of where we find it in the Psalter, that helps solidify it. Well, here's something else I'm going to show you about these psalms that's unique. And I'm not going to take the time to show you specifically in the text. You can look at that yourself. But there are two kingships that are celebrated in the Psalter. There's the Messianic kingship, that is the kingship of Messiah, whether it be David or David's seed or the Lord Jesus Christ himself. There are all kinds of psalms that laud and praise and adore the king, the earthly king that God has set on his hill in Zion. But then there are many psalms in the Psalter that are Yahweh is king psalms, Yahweh Malak psalms, Yahweh is king. One thing that's really interesting about this is if you look at book four, book four, which is about the absence of the Davidic kingdom during the time of the Babylonian captivity, where there's no Davidic king on the throne, there are no Messiah messianic messiah kingship psalms in that book at all but there are 10 consecutive psalms no no nine consecutive in that book that are all malach yahweh malach psalms yahweh is king because even though there wasn't a son of david on the throne god remained king in heaven even during the time of the exile these are little things that you learn by looking at these arrangements. But what you see here in this particular one, beginning with Psalm 20, is Psalm 20 is clearly Messiah is king. The earthly king is lauded in Psalm 20. In Psalm 21, Messiah is king. The earthly king is lauded. Psalm 23, Yahweh is king. 
the Lord himself has exalted as king. Psalm 24, Yahweh is king. The Lord is exalted as king. So the first two, 20 and 21, celebrate Messiah's kingship. 23 and 24, the last two celebrate Yahweh's kingship. And what's the psalm in the middle? One other thing you'll learn about the Psalter, if you ever take my course or ever read Dr. Robertson's book, there are seven that he has discovered what he calls poetic pyramids. What do you need to have a poetic pyramid? You need an odd number of psalms consecutively, that are all thematically related. And then look and ask yourself the question, well, why are these here? Why why is there an odd number? So your eyes will go to the middle psalm. That's the pinnacle psalm. Well, this is a poetic pyramid, 20 to 24, five psalms. What's the middle psalm? Psalm 22. What's Psalm 22 about? And if you read it, it won't take time, but you can do this this afternoon before you forget what I'm telling you now. Psalm 22 begins with what? The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. The crucifixion of Messiah. But what's the latter half of Psalm 22? It's after his resurrection and his ascension. And it exalts what? Both the Messianic king and Yahweh his king in the latter half of Psalm 22. So in the pinnacle psalm, you see the two kingships coming together. And that helps us see as we come to Psalm 24, it's even more pronounced here than that. There's no mention of Messiah in Psalm 24. But Psalm 24 is about Messiah, but he's called Yahweh. These two kingships of David and of Yahweh come together in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the son of David and who is the son of God. The son of David, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is Yahweh, the king. And that's what we see in Psalm 24. It's a glorious psalm. Look at how it begins. Verses 1 and 2, we see Yahweh's kingship, But in 1 and 2, it glorifies the true God and sings of his his universal dominion in 1 and 2. Glorifies the true God, sings of his universal dominion. Listen to it, hearkening back to creation itself. Remember, it's a creation psalm. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's poetic language that's intended to take you back to Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. And when the Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters and the separation from, of the waters from the waters and the creation of the earth. That's the language we have in Genesis 1. Here's the language we have in Psalm 24. God created the earth, and therefore he is the sovereign over the earth. It is his possession. Now remember from Psalm 8 that we saw in terms of man, and the question, what is man, David asked, when he considers the stars, the sky, and all that God has made. You see, in that Psalm that God gave Adam first, dominion over the creatures on the earth. But when the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, we see this is why we call Adam the vice-region of God. 
He has a dominion, but he is to exercise that dominion under the sovereign dominion of God himself who owns the heavens and the earth by virtue of the fact that he made them and he sustains them, you see. This psalm celebrates Yahweh's kingship over the earth in creation and therefore his universal dominion over the earth. Yes, he granted to Adam this dominion and this domain. But underneath his lordship and underneath his sovereignty, from which Adam fell, we know. So that's what you see in the first two verses. And then in in verses 3 to 6, we see that he describes the true Israel, the church. He describes true believers by asking a question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That's the question. Who can ascend into the presence of God? There is a lot of biblical theology that's behind this verse. The whole mountain motif. I've explored that with you to some degree. Some of you will remember when when Lowell preached a sermon from Genesis chapter 4 and offered you an alternate translation of the seventh verse. You may remember that. I listened to that sermon, was intrigued by it, took it further, and preached it to you as well. One night, I remember it was over at the Chinese Baptist Church when I preached that particular, uh, that particular sermon there. It, but, but in that sermon, you may not remember this, but we explored briefly the mountain motif of the Bible. Eden is not just a garden. In the Bible, Eden is a mountain in the garden. That can be demonstrated in Scripture. And so when Adam and Eve would go in communion and commune with God in the cool of the evening, they would ascend the, the, the mountain, the hill of Eden, and ascend into the sanctuary of God and worship Him and commune with Him upon that mountain. And when they fell into sin, they were banished from the garden of God, the sanctuary of God, the mountain of God. They were banished to the east, and that's where Genesis 4 comes in with Cain and Abel as they're making their offerings. And the point that both Lil and I tried to make is, where were those offerings made? What is the door? It's the door to Eden. Can man come back into the presence of God once fallen? And the whole Old Testament opens up the way by grace. The way by grace. First in the Old Covenant and then ultimately in the New Covenant in the Lord Jesus Christ to get back up the mountain into the presence of God. You see, the mountain motif goes from Eden. It goes to Sinai. It goes to Mount Zion as you read through the Old Testament. And, of course, we know all of those are pictures of the Mount Zion that is above where we saw in Psalm 2, God has said, His King on His holy hill of Zion, not here on earth, but the one in heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ and His ascension, which is what's described in the latter part of this psalm. This is rich, rich, rich theology. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may ascend Mount Zion? 
who may go into the presence of God. And under the old covenant, you can come near, but you cannot come all the way. Only the high priest on the Day of Atonement, bringing blood for himself and for the people, could go behind the veil atop the mount of God. The people had to make their sacrifices outside, outside. It's only in Jesus Christ that we now can come fully because he's entered into that Mount Zion in heaven, into the presence of God himself. But this is an important question. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who shall stand in his sanctuary? Look at the answer. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false or swear and does not swear deceitfully. Here's the one who received the blessing from the Lord. All you have to do is have clean hands and a pure heart. And we know from Scripture, from scripture you have to have perfectly clean hands and an utterly pure heart. They go into the presence of a holy God. Now, who wants to lift their hands and say, in your own works, you're ready to ascend that hill? Anyone here? Can't, can we? Our hands are dirty. <laughs> Our hearts are impure. It's why every <laughs> Sunday we have, what, a reading of the law, and then what immediately after that? A confession of sin, and then a reading of the gospel or assurance of salvation. Because it's through Christ Jesus that we can ascend the holy hill of the Lord and go into the presence of God. This is our justification because we go dressed in his righteousness that's imputed to us, that's granted to us, even as our unrighteousness was imputed to him and the curse of the covenant came down upon the Lord Jesus Christ in your stead. And now we get to send, ascend the holy hill. It's only because we are in Christ Jesus. Old Testament pictures that teach us much in terms of the mountain motif, the Old Testament sacrificial system that points to Christ Jesus, the sacrifice that would end all sacrifices. They gave power. They gave expiatory power to the Old Testament sacrifices because they prefigured the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is able to atone for sins. It's the Lord Jesus who entered in. God exalted him for his obedience. And we need to realize this too. It's important because it's often neglected. Sometimes we think about what we call in theology the historius salutus or the history of salvation those mighty saving events, especially as they culminate in Christ Jesus. We focus our attention upon his cross, upon his burial, and upon his resurrection, as you read in 1 Corinthians 15. And we forget the significance of his ascension in terms of the Historius Salutis, this significant event in redemptive history, the ascension of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens on the other side of the clouds of glory when he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, at the right hand of the Father, 
in the ascension where he rules and where he reigns, where he entered his priest and sacrifice. And that opened the door for us now to assemble in his presence. We don't have to worry about a veil that was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died on the cross any longer. You can. Why? Because your life is hid in Christ if you're united with him by faith. Then you will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And we seek him, why? Because he sought us first. The reason why we are Presbyterians. So the emphasis here is upon our justification, though the Bible elsewhere teaches our sanctification where we're actually being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ through sanctification. And there's a genuine and real and personal holiness that's being established in us by the work of the Spirit. But these are the ones who may ascend the hill of the Lord, and we can and we do, especially every Lord's Day, we come here because we're hitting Christ Jesus. Then we have this glorious text. I love this text. You can sense it's, it's, it's a regal text. It's a powerful description. Lift up your heads, O gates, the call is. I think Handel took this and put it to music in an antiphonal way that's, uh, that, that's quite extraordinary. Lift up your heads, O gates. And these are not the gates of Jerusalem. These are the gates of the invisible heaven where the throne of God is. This is depicting, we will see, the resurrection ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, the ascension of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so the call is to the gates that are shut so that no one can enter. Lift them up. Why? Because the king is returning from battle and he's returning with spoils. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, he's led captivity captive. He has In his resurrection, in his ascension, he is leading those that he has set free into the presence of Almighty God. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. These are everlasting doors that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Look at the text. The Lord. How is it spelled? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. See that in your Bible? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. I've told you this before. That's a pointer in the English. It's telling you, it's translating a particular Hebrew word. That Hebrew word is Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. If it's capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d, it's probably translating the Hebrew word Adonai, which is a title. Apply to husbands, to kings, to masters over their slaves, elsewhere in Scripture, or to God himself, depending upon the context. But Yahweh is always and only the triune God. That's his covenant name. So who is the king of glory who's coming into the gates? It's Yahweh. 
It's Yahweh. But when do we see Yahweh coming into the gates, and the gates being open wide, and the cheering of the angels, as he comes into their presence, having won in battle through death and resurrection, having accomplished redemption, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door. <laughs> Turn them to this text. What do witnesses deny? The deity of Christ. Who is Yahweh? Or they call him Jehovah, of course. Who is Jehovah? Well, Jehovah is God. Jehovah is the Father God. Well, who is Jesus? He's the Son of God, but he is not Jehovah. Oh, yes, he is. <laughs> you see, Yahweh is the name of the triune God. Any of the three persons can be designated by the name Yahweh. The person of the Godhead who came and battled and secured victory and who is entering with the spoils is the second person of the Godhead made flesh and his name is Yahweh. See? Who is this king of glory? Yahweh! Strong and mighty. Yahweh! Mighty in battle. And then the psalmist repeats, and it's David, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, so that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. That is Yahweh of hosts, the host of the angels, the myriads of angels. He is the King of glory. This is not... In the text, in the language that's used here, directly referring to David's kingship. David's not Yahweh. But the king who enters into these gates and into these doors, the one that's in heaven, is the Lord Jesus Christ, David's son. The Lord Jesus Christ, David's son's name is Yahweh. Now, you need to be a bit careful here. Anybody know any oneness Pentecostals? Any Jesus-only Pentecostals? Whether in the Apostolic Church, the United Pentecostal Church, that are anti-Trinitarian? They don't deny the deity of Christ. They deny the distinction of persons in the Godhead. It's called modalism. It's an ancient Trinitarian heresy called modalism. That There's one God who sometimes manifests himself as Father, sometimes as Son, sometimes as Holy Spirit. And so they will say Yahweh's name is Jesus. That's not correct. Jesus is the name of the incarnate Son of God. Yahweh is the name of God. Yes, Jesus' name is Yahweh. But the Father's name is not Jesus, and the Son's, the Spirit's name is not Jesus. Do you understand the difference, the distinction here? How do we guard against modalism in this text? Well, yes, it's Yahweh because Yahweh manifested himself as the Son and he died for sinners and he was raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. Yes, that's Yahweh in the mode of the Son, the modalist would say. You go to other passages of scriptures to make it clear, but look at Revelation chapter 5. I'm not going to turn to it again. You've got a lot of homework to look at these things. 
But in Revelation chapter 5, remember Revelation chapter 4, it's a picture of heaven. And something's wrong in heaven. You remember that? There's a picture of heaven. What dominates the picture is the throne that's in the midst of everything. And then there are 24 thrones that surround it. Upon those 24 thrones are 24 elders. And there are four living creatures that are vividly described who are singing holy, holy, holy before the one who sits upon the throne. But then there's the announcement that there's something that's wrong because the one who sits on the throne has in his right hand a scroll and it's got seven seals and there's not one who's found worthy or able to take the scroll and to break its seven seals. It's so troubling that John starts to weep. Who's going to break the seven seals? Who's going to execute the decrees of God if no one's found worthy? But then he said, oh, one's found worthy. Don't weep anymore. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he's been found worthy. And he turns to look to see the lion. Remember the description? He looks to see a lion, but what does he see? A lamb that's been slain. So, So is he a lion or is he a lamb? That's the question. The question, he is the lamb who is a lion. He is the lion who is the lamb. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. That's why the lamb is, appears as slain. But resurrected, he's able to take the scroll from him who sits on the throne and to break its seven seals. In other words, to execute the decrees of God. And the lamb sits down at the right hand of him who sits on the throne. So you ask the modalist, okay, (laughs) you say that God manifests himself as son and came down and did this work, and then he goes back to heaven as described in this particular passage that we have in Psalm 24. Who was on the throne he sat down beside in Revelation chapter 5? To whom did he make the presentation of his work? It's the Father. Because the Father and the Son are distinct persons of the Godhead, as is the Holy Spirit. And Trinitarian Christianity is the orthodox doctrine of who God is, one God in three persons. But what this text profoundly teaches over against the Arian, the Jehovah's Witnesses among you, is the full divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ who is declared in this text to be Yahweh of hosts, Yahweh mighty in battle. This is a glorious, glorious psalm. Okay, how is this applicable? I'm going to say the same thing I did last time. Sometimes this is the best application to text of Scripture. Behold your God Behold your Lord and Savior and fall on your knees before him. Worship him. Worship him. Because the victory that's celebrated as he entered into those gates and into those ancient doors and was received to the praises of the angels and to the church triumphant that's already there is the work that redeemed you that saves your soul.
We have a mighty Savior who's strong in battle. And this is what we see taught in this text. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for for your word and for this extraordinary text of Scripture. Lord Jesus, that you are indeed mighty in battle and Lord of hosts and you are Yahweh. And you, our sovereign Lord, you are our Savior and our Redeemer and our husband. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.